0: everybody. This is Tina again, good nurse, bad nurse. And I have another Instagrammer on or blogger. Um, I don't know which one is this is primary. I know you have a blog and I know you're also on Instagram, popular on both. So this is Patrick. And I want you to tell everybody, I'm so excited about this. Tell everybody what kind of nursing you do, Patrick.
1: So I am primarily a float pool nurse. That's what my clinical job is. I'm also adjunct faculty, nursing faculty, but my primary job is as a float pool nurse right now. And so I like to say that it means I play in everyone's sandbox a little bit, except for the babies and except for the mamas. Other than that, I pretty much do the whole full gambit. I go to the ER, I go to the ICU, I go to the psych unit, I go to oncology, med surge. I do it all. So yeah, my back, my primary background is as a CVIC nurse, but I've been a full- nurse at an academic medical center for about two and a half years now. So
0: That's just awesome. I mean, all of the, all of the things I'm so impressed right now, because I've been a nurse for five years and I, I worked on a progressive care unit for uh, about four years. And then the beginning of this year, I transferred to CVICU. And I've been off orientation for a couple of months, so I understand completely how incredibly impressive it is for you to have spent the time that you did in CVICU and all of the, nursing, the nursing skills that you have because of that. Because I see all these amazing nurses and all the, the things that they do. I'm not there anywhere near there right now. I'm overwhelmed, really, to
1: be honest with you. It takes time. There's so much. It definitely takes time. But you know, and I, I didn't realize how much the world picked on CBICU nurses until I like see all the memes that talk about, you know, I'm an ICU nurse, but I'm a CBICU nurse. And I'm like, I don't really think but then it's like CBIC nursing is it's, it's, it's definitely its own niche, but I mean, so are other types of ICUs, specialty ICUs, but um, you get a lot of, it, you, even though it's cardiovascular, you get a lot of global experience that can be applied to various uh, types of medical specialties. Uh, outside of just cardiovascular medicine and cardiovascular surgery, so
0: exactly, uh, it's kind of a. I know that our unit, we're we're a level one trauma center, so we will get trauma patients overflow. We get neuro patients overflow, anything really. We're we're pack you for the cabbage patients and and so, and other types of surgery patients if we have to be. And so it's it just can be anything. And I honestly did not know. I didn't really understand all of that. Mm -hmm. And this, that's, you know, we, this is good nurse, bad nurse. We have a good nurse story, a bad nurse story. We do that every week, but we also, like to talk about nursing stuff as well, just sort of incorporate that into the podcast because it's kind of, I really think it's um, important to help educate nursing students and new grads and all the nurses out there on all the different options, but also kind of letting you know what you might be getting yourself into depending on where you decide to go. And I don't want to, uh, I definitely don't want to discourage anyone, but I think it's good to kind of know what's ahead of you, what what you're going to be expecting so that you don't get overwhelmed and you're not hard on yourself really because I was very confident in my nursing skills on the floor. I was where I was before. I was a team leader for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. I was I was on night shift. I was on day shift. I just did I felt like I could not necessarily I definitely didn't know everything but I knew how to get an answer. I was confident in my ability to do that. Like I knew how to use my resources. And so I I was very comfortable in that atmosphere. Then, uh going changing units and seeing all the different things that i'd never seen before i couldn't even believe it i still can't believe it i every day i feel like several times a day i'm coming across something that i haven't seen before and it gets a little it does get a little discouraging sometimes because i just think Again, I've got to go ask somebody, I've never done this before. Can you show me how to do this? It's just constantly there are classes I have to take before I can take certain types of patients, of course. Mm-hmm. And it can be a little discouraging when you because you just feel like, man, I have gone so far backwards. I knew I had a lot to learn, mm-hmm. but I I almost feel like a new grad. Yeah. This it's just it's crazy. But I
1: think we have to kind of normalize it. That's what that's what happens when you switch specialties, or even if you're in the same specialty, but you're going from acute care to intermediate care, from intermediate care to, I think the jump from acute to intermediate care is not as, it certainly can be a a learning curve, but it's not as great. That jump from intermediate to critical, you would think, you get a lot, a little exposure to the critical care um, world, and and, uh, certainly intermediate care is kind of within the realm of critical care, but, you know, you you go to a whole nother level of thinking once you actually go to work into a critical care unit. And so it is doing that. It's okay to be starting back from ground zero. Like if I ever had to work with teeth patients, I would consider myself like sub new grad. I'm like, no, I'm back to being a nursing student. Like I know nothing. I know nothing. Like I don't know what, like the parameters for vital signs are totally different. The, you know, the way you dose medications is totally different. So and, I, and it would be okay. It's okay to kind of be, um, and I think it's actually good. I think one of the things about being a, a float nurse is that you get really comfortable with saying, I don't know, or I haven't done this because I'm going into a lot of situations where I'm going on floors where these people know the protocols on their unit really well, but I don't, and or I'm coming in, they may have changed something since the last time. There are some units I float to within a six-month span I float to that floor fairly regularly, but every time I'm at work, I'm on most shifts. I'm always on a, even if I work two days, two or three days in a row, I'm always on a different unit each day. So, you know, and then there are sometimes I go to a unit and it's been three or four months or six months or longer since I've been to that particular unit. So uh, I have, I've gotten really comfortable saying, I don't know, but can you help me? Or I i don't have to do this particular skill as much. So could you help me? And uh, I think when you get comfortable with that, I think that really accelerates what kind of nurse you going to be, uh, you can be. And it really makes you a better nurse because I think nurses need to be comfortable with admitting, I don't know. And uh, and knowing how to use their resources to get the an answer that they need, so I think that that's a good thing.
0: That's great. I I, I could just tell by the po- your blog and your posts uh, that you have on Instagram that you that that's the kind of nurse that you are. So that's why I wanted to have you on here to, to kind of talk to them because I told you before that we started recording, uh, there are a lot of nursing students and new grads that listen to this, and they are the ones that message me and tell me how encouraging it is to listen to this podcast because it's a little scary, of course, you know, when you would think about the responsibility that we have. And that's the kind of positivity that I want to try to foster within all nurses, that all of us are patient with each other and understanding and patient with ourselves. And um, and I'm having to relearn all of this. This is st- something that I've been saying for the past two years that I've been doing this podcast. I've been trying to tell people, be patient with yourself. Uh, don't beat yourself up. And then when I sw- <laughs> when I switched to CVICU, <laughs> I was having to go, wait, I'm Do I need to go back and listen to my own podcast? Because I've literally been telling everyone this. And then it's hard, even though I know it's really hard not to beat myself up when I don't know something or, and I just, or maybe I've learned, I know I'm supposed to know it. I think I've done this a couple of times. Why am I struggling with setting up this art line system? I get so mad at myself. And then just the anxiety of having family members in the room and you know this patient is very sick and I don't want them to be uncomfortable with me. And so I try to be very confident. But at the same time, if I don't know something, even if I even if I question, even just a little, if I'm just not a hundred percent sure, I will go get someone. I don't I'm not ashamed to go get someone right. and bring them right in there and show me how to do something because It's just too dangerous not to. It is.
1: And I mean, I think you have to, and and even when it comes to like, I had something that I've done for years and it was like, there was something with the art line, but it was a different art line than I'm used to normally working with. And I was like, I feel bad because everyone knows like, Patrick worked in CVSU for this long. And I had, you know, six years of my career was in cardiovascular surgery or cardiovascular medicine uh, and nursing. And it's, um, I was just like, I need help. And I felt bad about having to ask for help, but it's like, Patrick, it's new. Or even if it isn't new, if, it, if it's been six or seven months since you've done something, it may not come back like like that. And I think it's okay. And I'm totally one of the ones, I'd rather you think I'm stupid and look at me like I'm crazy than to me to mess something up. Because I, like, that... you. What you think of me is kind of inconsequential when it comes to when when what I'm doing is to make sure I'm being safe. So, well,
0: that's the message, uh, you guys, that I want. I really want to get across is to just always do not be afraid to ask for help. It doesn't matter. It really is inconsequential what the family is thinking or even what the patient is thinking because when it comes right down to it, yeah, it's important to you want them to be at ease. You want to include them in the care, but when it comes right down to it, the most important thing is patient safety. And that you're doing it correctly, not that, you know, they might think, oh, are you, do you know what you're doing? They may think that. I mean, that's going to happen. It is. It just can't be. It can't be the focus. It can't be what's most important. I do try to to be confident. And I think it's important to kind of fake it till you make it when it comes to your skills. Try to not show your anxiety. um but that doesn't mean fake your skills in that you are trying to just figure it out and fumble your way through something. It just means, you know, ask for help, get an answer. You know, I had to start an insulin drip uh, the other day. I had never had a DKA patient before and i had never started an insulin drip before. So it was totally new. Mm-hmm. I, and I was not, there's no way I was going to do that. Even, I mean, there, there are even parameters and there's, there are instructions and there's Information there, but there's just there's no way I was going to do that without going to get yeah. someone so I went and got someone and they came in and they, they were like, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah this, this is what you do. And they explained it. And the family is there's they're sitting right there while another nurse is explaining something to me. And I'm just thinking, Yeah, they probably are wondering, Oh my gosh, how long have you been a nurse? you know, and that yeah. kind of thing. But and you're like, I've I'm been sorry. doing this for and, a
1: long time, but this is new.
0: And and I've had people say that for like Tina, how long have you been a nurse? you know, and, and I'm like, I've been a nurse for five years, <laughs> but I've been in C V I C U as, you know, for about Four or five months. And um, the thing is, even on PCU, there's times when I'd have to go ask a question. As a team leader, I would go over to MCC, we're right outside of medical critical care, and get a nurse to come and show me how to do something if I hadn't seen it before. If I don't know how to yeah. do something, I don't know how to do definitely, it.
1: Definitely, definitely. And it's like, and, and when you should be that type of nurse, I think my, my, my nurse and mentor told me she's been a nurse for over 25 years. And she was like, I still ask questions all the time. She was like, and when today mm-hmm. you stop thinking that you have to, ask, she says, now, of course, the rate with you, what you ask them may decrease over time, but you should never be a nurse that feels like they never have to ask questions because that's dangerous. So
0: yeah. And please don't be the nurse who belittles someone for asking a question or who goes right. behind their back and talks to the other nurses like, I can't believe he didn't know how to do that or she didn't know how to do yep. that. That is so inappropriate and never, ever, ever should be acceptable. That's not what we want to promote on this podcast. That's the opposite. That's bullying. Yes. That's definitely not. We never want to do that. So so anyway, well, thank you, Patrick. I appreciate that. I'm so excited that the nursing students and new grads get to hear all that you have to say about that because it's so important. And you make me feel better, too, about my, about my current oh, of situation. Course. That's what we have
1: to do. is kind of like, you know, we have, if we want to end the culture of... Uh, nursing and eating their young and bullying, we kind of have to be like, look guys, it's okay to ask questions. Like I'm, I'm seven Mm -hmm. years into nursing and I'm still like, I've never heard of this medication before. I've never heard of this. And I'm like, what do we do? And like I said, Mm -hmm. being a full pool nurse has just made made me so much more comfortable being like, look, I don't know what this is. I need somebody to help me out. Even if it's something seemingly small, I'm like, I feel liberated to ask questions because I want to give the best care. I want to do the best at my Mm -hmm. job. So.
0: That's awesome. Well, I guess we can get into our bad nurse story with this woman. I'm telling you, she is something else. This week, we're going to be talking about a dialysis nurse. Her name is Kimberly Clark Signs, and that's how she pronounced it. This has been told a lot of different places. It's been, she's been featured in documentaries on Netflix and in different like oxygen type TV shows and that sort of thing. So it's you. You may be familiar with the story uh, if you follow that sort of thing. But she was an LPN. She was born in 1973 in Fall River, Massachusetts. She was married and divorced. Had two children, and had a hard time keeping a job. She had six jobs in two years, and that's sort of a red flag, you know. Usually, with someone, you just kind of, I guess, as um, a manager might be looking at that, going, "Why?" Is this person not able to hold down a job? Six jobs in two years sounds, it sounds excessive. There could be an excuse or a reason for it, but it might be a red flag. She struggled with substance abuse. One of her bosses at Woodland Heights Hospital caught her stealing Demerol. This must have been kind of back in the day because...
1: We don't use that as much.
0: um, We don't use that. (laughs) Yeah. I've never seen it used, honestly, myself. Um, But she was cheating on a urine test And that was back in 2007. And then she moved to Lufkin, Texas. So when this happened, that's where she was living. And even though she had this job history and had a history of substance abuse and cheating on urine tests and all of this stuff, she was still hired as an LPN at Davida Dialysis Center in Lufkin, So in April 2008, some of the people there at that dialysis clinic started to recognize something was seriously wrong. Something was not right. They didn't know what, but EMS had had to be called over 30 times, which was double the amount that they had been called the previous year. And those are just kind of the kind of statistics that a hospital or a clinic is going to look at, and they're going to come up. You know, Defin- in numbers. Definitely. Like, <laughs> definitely. They look at that stuff. They look at that stuff and they're just like, what's going on? It, it, and they're not they may not be looking at a at, at staff. But maybe acute, they're just looking at a, acute, pro- like, a process. An
1: acute elevation and stuff like that. And like, whoa, what's mm-hmm. what's going on?
0: There's a problem. There is a problem. Where is it? Is there a process problem? Is there a product that's going bad? That's what is what is going on? But they have to figure it out because there's clearly Something is not right. Two different patients had died of cardiac arrest on site, um, and and when I first, I was watch, I watched a couple of different um, videos on this, like the the TV shows. And one of them, there was a reporter who was kind of giving her opinion about this, and she said, "This is it's extremely rare for a patient to die during dialysis." And I thought, "What?" Because I, I honestly didn't. I don't know that I would have thought that it would be extremely rare, but and I don't really like. Um,
1: I, I've heard that, but I've had a fair amount of people have to remember with dialysis, you're taking a lot of fluid and some big fluid shift, and so I've I've had a number of people come in, not necessarily for cardiac arrest, but who've come in for near cardiac arrest <laughs> or or yeah. things like that. But yeah, that that would that would be surprising to me too. So
0: I I wonder if it's because you know we work in hospitals, we don't work in a dialysis clinic. Maybe it's because the patients that we have that are on dialysis that go to the dialysis floor, get their dialysis and come back, those patients maybe are more unstable than the ones that would be going to a clinic. So our perception just may be off,
1: you know. It feels like we might get them regularly, but in in reality, they have so many dialysis patients come through, you know. And I I think the nurses are very well trained that they, I think, you know, I, I can't believe it now because I think they're really they're trained to really know. I have a friend that does dialysis and they're really trained to know when someone having symptomology that they might need to stop a treatment. So I think that they're most of the time really good about being able to anticipate, look, this is too much and it's going to cause problems. So we stop the treatment for, for now. So you know what? That doesn't make sense now that I think about okay. it.
0: Okay. Well, that was, I thought that was interesting. Um, and I, there again, that's another specialty, a dialysis nurse. They know all about that whole system, and there's a lot to know. And in ICU, ICU nurses do CRRT and uh, sometimes even hemodialysis at the bedside if there's the setup for it. So uh, that's I haven't taken that class yet. It is something I'm going to be doing at the end of this month. I know there's a lot to, to learn and a lot to know when it comes to that as far as the dialysate and the balance mm-hmm. of all the things that go into that dialysate and understanding, watching their labs. Um, and so those nurses have to know a lot. So this nurse, she, that's why I guess I'm kind of surprised that they would hire someone who had a little bit of sketchy background Mm -hmm. because you would think you would want someone who's highly skilled, that knows, that understands, you know, knows what they're doing. has a good reputation. So this is what's going on here. There's just a clear problem with a huge spike in the number of patients who are having to be rushed to the hospital. Who two of which died of cardiac arrest? Um, those patients, by the way, were Thelma Metcalf and Clara Strange. Those were the two patients who who passed away. A clinical coordinator with VITA was sent to the site when this kind of came when this became apparent to them, and they were sort of trying to figure out what was going on. The paramedics were very concerned, so they went to their superiors at the fire department, and from there they called the state health inspectors. So, this is kind of eyeballs are kind of get coming from everywhere, and um, eyebrows are being raised, like something's odd here. So, patients Linda Hall and Lorraine Hamilton were scheduled for their usual dialysis treatments. They had become friends, and as you can imagine in this setting in a clinic like this, these it's almost like um, an infusion clinic where the same patients will come back
1: on the same over schedule. And over again. And, yeah.
0: Yeah. And they start to recognize each other and then like, oh hey. And then before you know it, they've exchanged names and they they become acquaintances and then maybe even friends over time, get to know the staff. I Would imagine this is almost like a family kind of um, atmosphere. I think that's how it would feel to me if I had patients that I saw on a regular basis over a period of months or even years.
1: Yeah, I would, I agree. I mean, this is the thing that they're doing for the long term, many times, or if not the long term, at least for a, a nice chunk of time. So you definitely get to know people, uh, and make friendships and of, of sorts. So I, I really, um, uh, I can totally see this just because I've I've worked in jobs where that were repetitive in nature where I did like cardiac rehab for people and they just, you know, you have people that did their workouts together because that's you know, they really didn't see each other any time outside but this some of them even formed really good friendships outside of it. So outside of the cardiac rehab. So it totally makes sense that, you know, you have these women that kind of come together and, you know, help each support each other through getting dialysis. So
0: Yes, yes, exactly. Well, one day they're sitting there waiting for their treatment and they look over and they really were shocked to see that there was a nurse, this nurse that we're talking about, Miss Signs, She placed a jug of bleach on the floor and then drew up 10 milliliters of bleach out of the jug with a syringe and then actually took it and injected it into two patient's lines which is just i i can't imagine being a patient sitting there these two patients are sitting there waiting and however this is set up whether they're sitting there maybe they're laying in their beds and it's just sort of like one after another i'm not sure but for whatever reason they're able to see her do this and you just have to wonder you know if you're the person working there maybe the charge nurse or i don't know how they're set up the manager and and you're told this <sighs> I have to say, my first instinct would be th- to think there's no way that they saw what yeah, they are not, saying. They like, saw.
1: I don't understand. I must have not saw what they what they did, or maybe it just yeah. looked like I would. I would. I would have tried to rationalize it as well. Like,
0: well, they went to another nurse and begged not to be treated by her. That's how convinced they were that they saw that, and they shared what they saw. They told the, this other nurse what they saw. The clinical coordinator confronted her, Kimberly. About it, and she said that she was cleaning an unused dialysis machine and used a syringe to get the precise measurement, uh, which is contrary to the corporate policy that that was definitely not something that she was supposed to be doing. There were special measuring cups that they were supposed to use because they did use bleach to clean the the dialysis machines, yeah. and they would run the bleach um, solution through to clean it. so, She's saying, yes, I drew up the bleach, but I was—I used it to clean a machine. I didn't put it into a patient's line. She addressed her without hesitation because they knew that things weren't right at the dialysis site. She was sketchy. Um, and it really, yes... They, well, I mean, if you think about it, they're already thinking something is really strange,
1: yeah, so they already had a suspect suspicion, so it's like it's not even that far of a jump. so let me just go ahead and yeah, like she was sketched, so well,
0: <laughs> there's no doubt, and so also both of the patients that she had treated that day had suffered severe drops in blood pressure, so that's not looking good either. So the clinic coordinator called the police at this point, and as a result of the claims, they shut down the dialysis center for two weeks. The lines and syringes that she used were brought to a lab to be tested for bleach. They were positive. She was fired, and her LPN license was suspended, and according to one of her coworkers, she had expressed a dislike for a number of patients, and all of those patients either died or coded at some point. Ugh. Another yeah, that's that's not good. Another coworker recalled that sh- uh, Kimberly went on a cigarette break after she had been taking care of patients and she asked her this coworker her name was Sharon to cover for her and then when Kimberly came back th- the patient's name was Opal Few. So when Kimberly came back, Ms. Few had coded, but Kimberly apparently didn't really rush over to try to help with mm. the code situation. And that seemed really strange. You know, you would think, you know, you went to lunch, you came back, someone's covering for your patients, and they're everybody's in the room and there's some some sort of an emergency going on. And you're not gonna jump in the middle of it and be like, Hey, this is my patient, what's going on? And because you know everything about that patient. Yeah. So you have you need to be in there. Yeah. Apparently she was just sort of...
1: Yeah, I could be on break. And if somebody... I've been on break and I had a patient to code and I like technically have the no duty break. But like, if you hear a room number and you know it's your room number, break or not, like I'm Mm -hmm. out there, you know, just because that's the right thing to do. And it's like, I I have the best relationship and knowledge of the patient at that point as far as, you know, what's going on. So
0: Yeah, so you're going to jump, you're going to run out there and just be like, what's going on? Uh, What do you need to know? Mm -hmm. Because you might have information that they need that they... They don't have. You know, you've been with that patient for several hours. So police conducted a search of her hard drive, and it revealed Google searches for information about whether bleach could kill.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah. When questioned by police, she mentioned the use of bleach to clean the lines before they mentioned bleach at all in their investigation. So whenever they were interrogating her, just to sort of see what she knew, They didn't tell her yet that they were investigating the possibility of patients being injected with bleach. She offered that information. She just said, oh, I use bleach. I don't know what happened to them. I use bleach to clean the line. So they thought, okay, that's a little suspicious Mm -hmm. for you to bring that up when I never told you.
1: That we're concerned that bleach was ever a concern. Mm
0: -hmm. Sketchy. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So she claimed that there weren't any measuring cups available, like we said earlier. So she had to use a syringe uh, to measure the bleach. I still, um, even if you if something like that happened, and she somehow justified it, I I can imagine in a a clinic like this, nurses maybe nurses might get used to doing something one way because they're just like, oh well, I don't have anything else. I'll just use a syringe. I'm not. I know I'm not going to you know accidentally use it to inject Mm -hmm. someone. I I guess I could see that Mm -hmm. happening, but I don't know how. I honestly don't know how that really matters, unless. Yeah. I mean, because unless you inject it into that patient's line, which you can't, there's no way you can say you did accidentally. Yeah.
1: Oh, I, and I feel like because it's like uh, universal measurements are universal measurements, it's like 10 and mils in and a cup and 10 mils in are the same. So it's like. Yeah. It, but the the problem comes when it's like you said, like okay, what are you doing with that 10 mils of bleach? You know. Right. Because uh, but so I like I don't see where that. That, that, to me, if you're not using the appropriate equipment and it is available, that's a lot less of an offense. And that's like a you just need to be counseled on a personal level about why, if there is a reason why we use this particular. Because there are some things, like I know I, there's sometimes there's some medications that come with a specific thing, even though it's the same measure, unit of measurement. there's It needs a specific device for measurement for whatever reason. So I've seen that. But uh, that's a lot more there's just a big difference in that, and then you drawn it up into a syringe, and and if you did have the appropriate things available, again, it's like, well, why aren't you using the appropriate things? It's that's mm-hmm. that's a multi-layered kind of weirdness.
0: Well, the police got in contact with an analytical chemist, and this chemist, uh, his name is Mark, helped them understand what bleach does in the blood, and and also if it would kill a person. So I mean, if if you don't know anything maybe about the body or about about medicine or about blood or anything like that, maybe you might be thinking, well, what would that do? You know, Could your body somehow process it? Is it going to immediately kill you? What's going to happen? And so they needed an expert to come in and say, well, this is what would happen. And there wasn't much research that explained how the chemistry actually worked. But when bleach enters the bloodstream, it causes hemolysis, which of course we know is the destruction of red blood cells. And then that's what leads to cardiac arrest. So that's what was happening to these patients. They were being injected with bleach. And I bet
1: there's not a lot of research because who is just going around and injecting people with, or even animals, like who's injecting animals or people with stuff like that? Like if they are, for any so-called legitimate reason, that's wrong. I just like, I bet there's not a lot of research about it. Yeah.
0: There wouldn't you shouldn't need research about this. There should never be a reason to want to Leech. put bleach into the bloodstream. Yeah. So she was subsequently arrested um on charges of five counts of capital murder and five counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. <sighs> they, you know, when watching again watching these these t- the television shows it showed the actual interviews so they it, you could see there was sort of a, one of those police kind of um, cameras up in the corner and you can see her sitting at a table and you can see the, the detectives talking to her and at one point she's kind of going through her purse and then all of a sudden the answers to her questions in the interview started getting really strange and you can see the detectives kind of like almost look at each other like what is going on. She could not even answer the questions coherently. So she obviously had taken something. So she is probably just, I, I would imagine, working impaired yeah. the whole time. She's taking care of these people, which is still no excuse for injecting blood, uh, bleach into, the, into their lines. I, I don't, even if you're impaired. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, it just kind of reveals that there's the underlying condition there. Uh, being that mm-hmm. substance abuse is a mental health condition. And does it yeah. now I'm not saying it's a justification for anything what people do, but it, it kind of just goes to show you that you kind of have to be careful and be very knowledgeable about the struggles that people have had. And sometimes it's hard for places because all the laws and everything you have, but when it comes to working in nursing and education, things like that, like you have to, you are required to divulge certain things. You're supposed to at least, but like it's kind of, if there's not a written record of you having an issue, it's really up to the person to be honest about. I, I struggle with this to an extent, or they can have substance abuse, but it may not have the full extent of understanding how, like, what your substance abuse, substance abuse has led you to do in the past, or how it's made your life chaotic. And but yes, like it, even even having a mental condition, it doesn't justify uh, the actions of that person as being correct or being acceptable or less horrible. You know what I mean?
0: Yes, exactly. It doesn't. And in substance use disorder is definitely it is it's a disease it for sure and I would never want to minimize that, but it also even though you struggle with substance use disorder, there are also behaviors that go with some that you know some people choose that are kind of separate from that. Yeah. You know, you ch- choosing to take to do drugs and then take care of patients, that's a horrible decision that's reckless you could you know you have someone's life in your hands and you know you're you're impaired and taking care of them that's one thing that's that's a terrible decision and it's very reckless but what she was doing because the thing is this was not just it's not like she was just working impaired she was struggling with substance use disorder and then accidentally got mixed up and was Tra- thinking she was cleaning this line. She's intentionally... It's, that's not what happened. Yeah, she's intentionally. It she is because there's too, it happened too many times. Mm-hmm. It happened over and over and over, and it happened to all of the patients that she complained about not liking. So it's just this pattern. Also, her Googling whether or not bleach would kill a patient mm-hmm. and what it would do to a patient if you inject it into the line. There, There's all of this evidence that showed that it was intentional and in then yeah. she knew what she was doing and she intended to kill the patient. So that's um that's the thing. So on March thirty first, two thousand twelve, an Angelina County jury convicted her of murdering five patients and injuring five other patients. Prosecutors sought the death penalty, but she was sentenced to five concurrent terms of life in prison without the possibility of parole for the five murders plus three consecutive 20-year sentences for aggravated assault. The five murder victims were Clara Strange, Thelma Metcalfe, Garland Kelly, Cora Bryant, and Opal Few. And District Attorney Clyde Harrington believed there were more victims than just the 10 indicted cases based on CDC research. The CDC epidemiologist statistically connected her to other adverse health events, Um, and the detectives could only obtain medical waste from two weeks prior to that event, that one that subsequently ended up in her arrest and and, and being charged. That that meant that there was inadequate evidence to raise further indictments against her for all the other incidents. So they don't know how many people she actually killed. But all of this stuff was going on for because they were they were already concerned that something was wrong and there were twice the number of incidents that year than the previous year. So there's just no telling how many deaths and injuries she was actually responsible for. Yeah.
1: Oh and can you imagine like any other patient that was at that center and how they would have felt like even if they weren't treated by her, you know, they're gonna always be in the back of their mind like. Like what if I like what if I'm I'm affected by what she did in any way? Or they try and to think about was I one of the people that she doesn't like? Because you know they had to kind of release a statement to all the people in the center when this happened in some way. And I can only imagine mm-hmm. like the ter- how terrified you would be to know that you were that close in that close of contact with someone that did something like that.
0: Yes, and think about all the, all of the patients who just that hear the story that know that this is the, that there are psychopathic nurses out there and other medical professionals. It's not just nurses. There are doctors who do this sort of thing, respiratory therapists. We've talked about lots of healthcare professionals who have done just malicious, just absolutely horrific things like this to patients who are vulnerable and who are counting on them to take care of them. They're very, very... When you you compare the number of nurses to the number of ones that choose to do horrible things like this, The number is just, it's extremely, extremely rare for obviously for people to do this. But the thing is, there are people like this out there in every profession who are just awful people. They're just evil, mean, disgusting people. And they're going to slip into the healthcare profession and this is the sort of thing it's kind of this one of the reasons that we do this podcast and talk about it and bring this into the light because you do have to be aware you as a patient you need to be aware of what's going on what is what is that nurse putting into your line what what is that doctor doing are they supposed to even be doing that what ask questions don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid to watch what's going on if it's at all possible if you're a family member don't be afraid to to watch and ask questions and don't just assume. Yeah,
1: and 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 it just reminds us we need to remind our patients. this like this is your body and I need you to take an active part. And and so long yes. the historical view of medicine and nursing and healthcare was I just do whatever they tell me to do and I don't question, I don't ask. I'm always impressed with my patients and I always make a point of telling them when that when I'm giving them their medicine and I say this and they're like, oh yeah, I take that this is for this, this is for that. And they, because usually I, as I'm given a medication, I don't care if they've been taking it for 20 years, I like say, oh, I have your carbidol. This is one of your medications for your heart or for your blood pressure or something like that. And when they're like, yeah, I take that for this and this and that, I'm like, I to always make sure to reinforce that uh, with a lot of positive reinforcement. That's so good. You should be you know, knowledgeable about what's going into your body. And I, because some of these things, not to say that that's going to necessarily prevent you, you being from being exposed to someone that's unstable, or someone that's downright murderous, or anything, but it will kind of help you pick up nuances and be like, "Wait a minute, that doesn't sound right." Wait, and then, because as a patient, you always have the right to say no and refuse, and be like, "I need to talk to someone. I need someone to explain this to me." It's so true, and not. And I by I no means say that to to blame her patience that she did this to. Because it shouldn't, we, it shouldn't come to that, but it is a protection for yourself because, you know, when you're dealing with someone in this story, you just kind of are almost like you just hope that someone is looking out for you. And like those two ladies that we're watching, they happen to be looking out and being observant and, and it helped them out. So I'm by no means saying that, you know, you being vigilant, you should have to protect yourself from healthcare providers like that because we shouldn't have people like that in healthcare. But it but because it's the, the way the world works, we can't always filter out these people. so
0: it's true and and not only uh, as patients do uh, patients need to be watching out, but as co-workers, as you know nurses, Need to be watching other nurses. We not that we're just constantly questioning and wondering, but you do need to be advocating for your patients and for the other patients that that are that are around you. If you see something that's odd, that's not right, you do have an obligation to say something. These are all lives, and if you notice a strange behavior, and this is we do education on this every year. Nurses have to do this sort of education. All healthcare workers do about. Noticing strange behavior from from other nurses or from other of your coworkers, and how important it is to say something. and uh, And it's hard because these they're friends of ours, right? And we, I mean, you don't want you don't want to think badly of someone. And most of us are wonderful people and wonderful nurses and wonderful whatever it is the job is CNA, you know, respiratory therapist, doctor, whatever it is. Most of us are well-intentioned and are doing our job to the very best of our abilities but for those few people those bad apples that are out there we all have to be willing to step up and say something you can't just stand there and watch someone hurt another human being or be even being negligent and not do something that's part of your responsibility if you're not willing to do that you need to get out of the job
1: i completely agree it's we all can very get get very comfortable in our settings and everything and it's okay to be comfortable but it's not okay to to like stop being vigilant and i think that that's the biggest lesson um, because when we start to get comfortable we 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 miss things that if we were if we were being constantly vigilant that we would normally pick up even within our own cells you know not even all uh, externally but even with ourselves when you get into a habit And uh, you don't go through the checks that you're supposed to go through. Accidents happen or you can miss things that aren't accidents that are actually kind of malicious going on. So
0: Yes, exactly. Well, I guess that's our bad nurse story. For this week, we have another really amazing good nurse story. This week, we, uh, with all of the stuff that's been going on in the world and that's in this country lately, we've been trying to put a focus on Black Lives. Black Lives Matter. We've been trying to uh, be involved in as many um, campaigns that we can, whatever we can do to speak up and uh, do our part. And part of that in the Share the Mic campaign, we've we've been. Um, we've had last week, we had Jer on, who was the um, vice president of the Tennessee Student Nurse Association. And she is very active in her uh, as a student nurse at Memphis University School of Nursing. And so she came on and and she basically took over the podcast, which was really cool. And she kind of just ran the show and talked about whatever she wanted to talk about. And it was just really, I just learned so much from her for one thing. And I loved just doing that. And I want to do that some more. I want to, and that's the next day after they had that share the mic now campaign for the one day, it was cool because the next day they were, the campaign became keep sharing the mic. So I love that. It's like, we're going to keep doing it. We don't want this to just be like a hashtag moment or, um, like just something that's going on right now. But, no real change is going to come from so we have to just keep pushing it out there keep pushing it out there making it the focus and making it um making that the conversation until change happens period we just keep keep bringing the conversation back so in light of that i wanted to as until i literally run out of black healthcare professionals every week i'm going to try to come up uh, with a new person and there are plenty of them, trust me. So this week, last week we talked about Harriet Tubman and it was kind of funny because I had Q the nurse on and he did not know that she was a nurse. And maybe a lot of people don't know because she did so many other amazing things. A lot of
1: people don't realize her and during the truth. They're known for their social activism a lot more than their mm-hmm. their role of nursing. And of course we have to remember that this is a time where formalized training for a nurse happened, but it wasn't as like a requirement. So uh, it, right. nursing didn't, nursing... You could be a nurse and not have attended a formal program, if that makes sense.
0: Yes, yes, that's true. And and I I've done Sojourner Truth. I don't even know when that was. It's been, it's been a while. But that was another one that I think that people are like I did, what she's a nurse. I didn't know that because all of the other amazing things that they've done just sort of overshadow yeah. the fact that they were a nurse. So yeah, it was really it was really cool to, to get to tell Q that because I didn't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Our nurse this week is Estelle Massey Osborne, and she is a really fascinating person. For one thing, well, just to kind of tell you a little bit uh, about her beginning, she was born May 3rd, 1901. She was the eighth child of William H. and Betty Estelle Massey. Both of her parents were uneducated, but highly intelligent, and they wanted their children to have an education, have further higher education. The amazing thing is, this was in uh, Texas, Palestine, Texas. And this couple had eight children and all of them, all of them went to at least two years of college. And several of them went uh, higher than that. And, and Estelle is, is one of the ones. So that's, to me, amazing in and of itself. It is. Just, it's really unheard of. So She was a native of Palestine, Texas. She attended local public schools. She went through a teacher's training program and uh, got her training certificate and became a public school teacher. And then there, and I couldn't find anything about this event. So I don't know exactly what this was, but there apparently was an act of violence that was committed. It doesn't say it was racially motivated, but it's just, it's Texas. And I just have to wonder because uh, it Almost resulted in her death. Whatever this act of violence was at the school. Wow. Yeah. So because of this, she decided to go on and uh, get a get a degree to do something different. And her brother, one of her brothers, was a dentist in St. Louis, and she actually was going to bec- become a dentist. And he discouraged her from doing that. Don't know why, but for maybe he felt like it would be just a little bit too much to overcome. You know, even women, period, were not really at that yeah. time. Dennis, so he probably felt like, you know, you're going to have so much. You have enough to worry about without having to fight that battle, too. So... He encouraged her to become a nurse, and she wasn't crazy about the idea at first. I think she's she sounds like one of these people who's like, "Why do I have to be a nurse just because yeah. I'm a woman?" I could just see her doing that. She seems like this really spunky kind of person that just defies all the rules and you know of the day.
1: I agree. And, but her career is a testament to that. I agree.
0: Yeah, she just wants to go against everything and prove everyone wrong that says um, that says you can't do something. So even though he was kind of encouraging her, she sort of pushed back a little bit. But then um, I think he just kept on about it and then maybe even brought some other people around to kind of talk to her about it. So she did reluctantly decide to go to nursing school. She got a Bachelor of Science degree in 1930. And so she, she started her training at City Hospital Number 2 in St. Louis and then received the first scholarship award to a Black nurse by the Julius Rosen. Rosenwald Fund, and then continued her studies at Columbia. And that's where she got her BS degree. Um, That was in 1930. This is a time when it just seems, this whole thing just seems so impossible when I just think about someone, just just a person that, that wasn't wealthy to be able to go to college and get a degree in 1930. That seems unusual. Male, female, black, white, anybody isn't it? I mean, it just seems like that's not the sort of thing that really happened in nah, that day. It
1: wasn't. Well, and especially at uh, what become an Ivy league school and they just weren't, it wasn't a thing that happened often. And a lot of times they were the only, if they got admitted into programs like that, but then to not only that, but to mm-hmm. receive a scholarship was like, <laughs> that's just like, pff, it's hard enough to get those nowadays, you know, just cause funds are limited and things, whatever, but to be in the 1930s before, you know, um, Jim Crow and the South was really eradicated and everything, even though this was up North, mm-hmm. you know, sentiments, you know, I, I always tell people, I said, what people don't have to realize is that the North was an escape from the South, but it was by no means a complete safe haven, and so because prejudice certainly made it made its way up north, and and things like that, and racism still existed. It may have been a little bit more covert than in the south, but it definitely existed. So it's definitely impressive that she. It's. it's I won't say impressive because she's obviously a smart woman. So it's not impressive. It is. It's impressive in the fact that she was able to overcome that and was able to um, do these things despite uh, the way society was was. Built at the time,
0: yeah, for sure, everything was stacked against her, and she she was able to get around it somehow. She got her master's degree in nineteen thirty one and what she decided to do at that point is she started advocating for other people, so she opened many doors for black nurses. She was the first black superintendent of nurses and director of the nursing school at the Homer G. Phillips Hospital in St. Louis, and that was from nineteen forty 1940 to nineteen forty two She was the first Black nurse to receive a Master of Arts degree with a major in nursing from Teachers College at Columbia. In 1949, she was a member of the the Board of Directors of the American Nurses Association, and she was an official delegate to the International Council of Nurses in Sweden. Wow. (laughs) I know. And, you know, this is the sort of thing, like, I wouldn't have been as surprised if she came from a very affluent family that were, you know, very wealthy. There were there were very wealthy Black families um, at that time. There's no doubt about that. There, that was something—Q and I were talking about this last week because um, I had watched um, Harriet, the the movie Harriet, and there was a character in that movie that was not an actual real character, but they just sort of— um, made up the character to just sort of illustrate that the type of person who really did exist at that time, and, and she was a very uh, wealthy black woman who owned a business, and and so they just wanted to kind of illustrate that that was a thing that actually yeah. happened. So th- I don't think it. I think that if that was the case here, if Estelle came from that sort of family, you wouldn't be a surprise, yeah. right? That she if she had those sort of opportunities, but that's not the case. That wasn't the case at all. So that's what amazes me is that she just went from one, she tackled one thing and then went to something else and something else. She was constantly wanting to be challenged and constantly challenging um, the norms of the day. And she opened so many doors for so many people. She was a teacher. She at one point became the director of nursing education at New York University, and I found one account because a lot of the so I like reading the encyclopedia, and reading several accounts of her life. The, it doesn't say that she was the director of New York of the of nursing in, in, at New York University, but I read one account that said because most of them say she was like on the faculty, yeah. but I read one account that said she actually was the director. She was sort of the acting director, and she. Did an amazing job, a phenomenal job, but they wouldn't actually give her the title.
1: Which, which, which is in alignment with history. That makes sense. Yeah,
0: yeah. Which is unfortunate because I wish that they would just give her that acknowledgement. You know, in with all of the other amazing things that she did, she was the director. She officially was. That's what she did. In reality, they will list it and say that she was on the faculty, and it really doesn't say what she actually truly did because they wouldn't give her the the official title, because she was a black woman. So anyway, I, I don't even remember the, the because I read so many different sources when I'm reading these stories. Sometimes I forget, like, where was that one? I know I read that somewhere, and I couldn't, couldn't figure out the, the one that I read. But anyhow, so she did so many things that honestly, I don't even have time to list them all. She's just an amazing person, and she just never stopped, I don't think, until she died on December 12th, 1981, at the age of 80. Um, She received so many different honors and awards, and she's just an amazing person. Her her biggest claim to fame was being the first to get her master's degree, which I thought was really
1: cool. Which is really interesting because when we look at the history of nursing education in this country, we have to realize that 1930s, that was the time where nursing for a long time, we weren't allowed to offer doctoral degrees. Within the profession of nursing, like it just wasn't considered to be sciencey enough. It wasn't considered to really, it was just considered to be a thing, a technical, very technical thing. So in the 1930s, mm-hmm. you saw the first. Um, and, it, and ironically, it was, you know, Columbia University about 1935, between 1933 and 1936, they offered the first nursing doctoral degree. And it was offered from the teacher's college, just like her master's was. And it was a doctorate of education. And uh, it had a focus on nursing. And that and that's what a lot of people may not realize is that that same program still exists to this day. The teacher's college still um, offers that. Uh, Doctorate of Education. So instead of a PhD, it's an EDD, and it's uh, they have a focus specifically on nursing education. And so it was so impressive at that time because you're at a time where essentially the master's degree was the terminal degree of the time for many nurses. Even today, most nurses still don't have, most nurses still don't have a graduate degree. So it it really accentuates it that back in that time. She really had this uh, really advanced level of education, not only for a nurse, but for a, a nurse who was a Black woman as well. And then towards the end of the 1930s, you start seeing PhD programs finally forming in nursing. So it's just it's interesting to see how she was uh, really ahead of her time, uh, especially for a Black woman, that she had the opportunity or she created the opportunity for herself. To be able to expand her knowledge, um, because what we have to remember is that when it comes to teaching, especially at the collegiate level, it it gives you a certain level of authority. And given a black woman an authority like that to be uh, administering a nursing program and, and, and teaching other people about how to become nurses and uh, be nurse educators, that was unheard of. And she rose to the occasion. And yeah, and we're and we're in this. We're so. Thankful if we did. And someone, as someone who's currently in graduate school, herself for a Master of Science in Nursing Education, it really kind of makes me feel a little bit of a kinship with her and seeing that I wouldn't have been able to do what I did had people not her, like, had not paved the way before me. So I'm really, she's a really big, I'm a really big fan of hers. So,
0: yeah, so am I. And I think that it's, there's no doubt in my mind with all that she was able to accomplish that she was smart enough to go to, to dental school and become a dentist. This woman could have done yeah. anything she put her mind to. So I'm glad that she chose nursing because she's certainly changed the world of nursing for the better mm-hmm. for everyone. So I'm really thankful for her.
1: I remember doing a report on her. and I think there was something about like in 1946, she was a, a key element in helping combine, stop having two separate nursing Bodies for colored nurses and for white nurses. And so I think she was mm. kind of part, she was involved, a part, part of, I don't know to what degree, but there are things that reports that say that she was involved in helping finally just combine the National Association for Colored Nurses, the National General Assembly of Colored Nurses, and the American Nurse, what will become the American Nurses Association. So she was kind of helped and, and involved in the integration of that as well. So she was impressive. She was definitely impressive. Yes.
0: I don't know how she got all she got accomplished because it's it's exhausting to me to think about just trying to get my master's degree. Mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah. know. <laughs> uh, when I think about trying to just do one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, but she just she did not have children, so she poured her whole life. It sounds like into her career, and she gave she gave it her all, obviously, and made a made a difference. So. I'm really proud
1: of and her. I think one of the things talks about how she got divorced at one point. She got married to a yeah. a doctor. I don't. it said doctor. I'm not yeah. sure if he was a physician or if he was like a, just a doctoral, doctorally prepared uh, academic or something. But and she divorced mm-hmm. him and then remarried her second husband. And just to think about that, it showed her determination because divorce is not. As, especially during that time was just not seen as a thing you did and then so you, she had to be able to feel like she could have taken care of herself and provided for herself to be able to live and be independent and so that, it, it shows that she was like I can do this like I don't she mm-hmm. I, I don't of course even I don't know what the divorce was for but and the, who, how it was instigated or whatever but you know the fact that she was able to be like alright I can pick up and move on When for so many women, that would have been a very detrimental thing at that time. And it was viewed as like, oh, you you got divorced and has such a a much more negative connotation than it does today. And so I think that that is another example of her strength. She overcame that, got married again, and continued to do great things with her career. So
0: Yes, it's people like that are the people who change those perceptions for everyone else. Because so many women, like you're talking about in that day, had to just endure marriages. Yeah. Because they were afraid of what they were going to have to deal with if they if they did leave their husbands and got a divorce. Then they're going to be this marked woman that's, you know, damaged goods or whatever whatever the society called them at the yeah. time. And that was black, white, anyone. Yeah. And so she just seemed to be the kind of person who was just very strong in um, who she was. And just not afraid to just get, deal with whatever she was dealing with and push through whatever the struggles were, because she had to hit roadblocks everywhere she turned for her to accomplish all that she accomplished. Yeah. Can you imagine yeah. the hurdles? You would think that she would have just been so exhausted. And after accomplishing all that she has accomplished in her life, that she would have, you know, decided, you know, I've, I've done enough. I don't have to keep going. But she did, she kept going, and one more thing, and one more thing, and always. And when when she was doing that, what she was doing is she was giving permission for women around her to do the same thing you know, and opening doors for everyone.
1: I, I think it just kind of goes to the testament. Something that I've heard a lot and being raised by black women, is just that always had to do what they've had to do. And it's like, you, know, you read the accounts about her life. She was often overlooked for positions that she was more qualified for. People would come, she, even though she had expertise in area, they would go and ask a white nurse instead of her. And particularly in the political climate we're, we're living in now, fighting racism and prejudice is physically and emotionally draining. So you can only, and, and it, like you said, it kind of just makes it even more impressive to see how she got through that. Not only did she just get through it, but she thrived. She made changes. She established programs and practices that that would, in the long run, uh, have an impact that was wider than herself. And I think that that's something, it's a unique fight to be a woman But then also to be a black woman, um, because it comes with its own unique challenges. Um, It it makes her story so much more impressive, and I am thankful that I I have gotten to learn about her. But I think also we need to learn more about these people in in nursing school, because like I didn't learn about this in nursing school. Like, did you?
0: No, no. We had maybe a few, a handful of nurses that we maybe learned from, learned about one semester. I vaguely remember it yeah so so a lot of the uh nursing students that listen to this podcast i hope this will give them an opportunity by me kind of highlighting these people week after week to to hear some of the the women in history
1: outside of florence nightingale
0: outside of florence nightingale exactly
1: i told someone i said i don't hate florence (laughs) but i'm okay if i don't hear her name for a few years because we we just and it's like we appreciate you know whatever with the contribution she made to nursing okay that's I, no one's uh, denying that, but there have been so many other people of all of all races of we I mean hispanic nurses, Filipino nurses, black nurses mm-hmm. nurses with various lived experiences that we don't get to hear about because we get the same Clara Barton, you know, Florence Nightingale, Mary Breckenridge. We get those same, those are the ones. And, you know, we don't spend a lot of time on in history, on history in nursing school or, or learning about our history in nursing. It's just kind of something like we mention it here and there. But when we when you do mention it, it's usually the small set about four or five nurses, primarily mm-hmm. white, mm-hmm. almost exclusively, mm-hmm. that we hear about uh, yeah. these white women when there have been men and women of, of various ethnic backgrounds who have done so much, not b- before Nightingale and after Nightingale. So it's, it it definitely means that, I think it's something that we want to change in nursing education, but it also for ourselves to realize that we have these people doing amazing things now and they're living his living history now and that, you know, who we've recently lost or lost in the last couple of decades who have done amazing things that we don't get to hear about.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that they're, our history books are definitely skewed. They are. Uh, mm-hmm. There's, they're just not, they're not accurate uh, because the perspective is also narrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we, I think that everybody needs to kind of open their eyes up to this and realize it, that there's, there's a whole history out there that we aren't privy to, mm-hmm. that we need to open our eyes up to and research it, find it out, find out what, who are all the other people that uh, that aren't being talked yeah. about? Um, and there's just a whole other history to learn, and that's we're going to try to highlight that in the coming weeks on this show. Great. and find all kinds of different people to talk about. So I'm super excited about it.
1: Great,
0: I love history. Yeah. So
1: I'm a, I'm a big history nerd. Yeah, I've got Vernon. There actually are nurse historians out there. There's a whole organization. So that's a big a big resource about kind of people who have searched um, history, the history of nursing and and, and healthcare specifically so there are resources out there you guys you know y'all that you you can really really delve into that will kind of help you give a get you widen your 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 perspective and the lens on history that we've been given historically throughout school so
0: i love it well thank you so much patrick for coming on you've been just a pleasure to do the podcast with this is going to be a great episode i think people are really going to enjoy it and a lot of really good conversation if you guys are listening and you have anything to add if there's something maybe every now and then just it's it's very rare, but every now and then I say something wrong and so I get something I actually say it, it actually happens all the time and I love it when you guys <laughs> message me and just straight straighten me out on these issues I want to know I like being corrected send me a message though and I like your words words of encouragement um if you have stories that you want me to do, send me those I love hearing those too good nurses, bad nurses, whoever it is and Anyway, you can find, oh, Patrick, let them know where they can find your blog. Where can they find you?
1: You can find my blog at www.patmacrn.com. So that's P A T M A C R N.com. And then my Instagram is at Patmacrn. It's the same thing at P A T M A C R N. And then I'm also on Twitter at um, at Nurse R-N. So. A couple of different ways you can get to me. <laughs>
0: yeah. And you guys, of course, can find us at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse podcast on Instagram, at GNBN podcast on Facebook. And we, are, of course, are goodnursebadnurse.com. And I'd love to hear from you. And I also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs>